You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. So now, as we, as we tackle chapter 21, I've titled today's message, Temporary Insanity. Temporary Insanity. I don't know how many of you remember this, but I remember back in high school uh, re, uh, learning the, the so-called Twinkie defense. Anybody heard this? The Twinkie defense? Now, the legend of the Twinkie defense was that back in 1978, Dan White had shot uh, San Francisco City Supervisor by the name of Harvey uh, Milk. Then he also shot and murdered uh, the mayor of San Francisco, George Moscone. Now, uh, evidently, according to the legend, he was binge eating so many Twinkies, ding-dongs, and ho-hos that he was on such a sugar high that he was just driven to a murderous frenzy. He was like, you know, it's not my fault. The Twinkies made me do it. Now, that's the legend of the so-called Twinkie defense. Now, the true story was that, was that Dan White was, was battling chronic depression, uh, severe mental illness, and during the court case, his junk food binging was only brought up just to illustrate his current state of mind. And so they ruled that he was, in fact, temporarily insane. Well, now, this morning here in chapter 21, we see that, that David may not have been binge-eating Twinkies, Ho-Hos, and Ding-Dongs, but he will plead the temp for, for temporary insanity. But for now, as we pick up verses 1 and 2, the first two verses, we discover first that David is on the run. David's on the run. Verse 1, Then David came to Nob, to, a, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came uh, to meet David trembling, and he said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I've charged you. And then David said, I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. So now in this passage this morning, we're going to see that, that David goes from being uh, Israel's most loved to now being Israel's most wanted. He's literally wanted dead or alive. So, in fact, Saul wants him dead. At the end of last week's chapter, we saw that Jonathan uh, gives David the signal that, that it's not safe, that, that, that he's a wanted man, that the King Saul wants him dead. So now David is on the run, but as he's fleeing from Saul, it does not seem that he's running to God. And, and, and so now he comes to the city called Nob. Now, uh, the picture here is that David fled from Gebeah, where Saul was. He goes about three miles northeast to the city of Nob, which was a priestly city. So he comes to this priestly city, and now the priest comes out, and he's like, David, why are you alone? Now listen, it would, have, it would not have been unusual for, for one of the most uh, decorated soldiers in all of Saul's army to, to be in patrol in that area, but would have, what would have been unusual is for David to be alone. In fact, we often read that wherever David went, he, he was almost always accompanied. He always traveled with his quote-unquote mighty men. These, 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 this group of, of die-hard, battle-tested, drink Red Bull and take names kind of guys. And he, and he never traveled without them. And yet in this particular case, they were not with him. David's alone and it's a red flag. So now the priest, you know, he asks him, you know, why are you alone? Now, by the way, the name of the priest, Ahimelech, is a name that means friend of the king. Friend of the king. So David's thinking, you know what? I, I don't know if I can trust this guy. I mean, for all I know, he might be on the king's payroll. I mean, after all, his name does mean friend of the king. And so, you know, David's like, uh, well, uh, uh, I'm alone because, you know, uh, oh, I'm on, I, I'm on a secret mission. Yeah, that, that's it. That's a ticket. Yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm deep undercover. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I, I've gone dark. I'm off the grid. 
It's like this old saying I heard that says, it's not paranoia when they really are out to get you. So David doesn't know who to trust. Now, you know, when, he sa- when David says, um, you know, I'm on this secret mission, now we might have called that a little white lie. You know, we might say he was stretching the truth. You know, this was a, a lie of convenience, but the bottom line is that David was lying. Listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I wouldn't have done the same thing. And in fact, quite frankly, I think that, that most of us, if we were in the exact same situation that David was in and, and, and our life was, was on the line, we would have probably done the same thing that David did in this chapter. But I think this does show us the condition. It shows us where, where David's heart was. It shows us where his trust was. Psalm 46 verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Some translations will say a very present help in time of need. It does remind me of a, of a mother who was trying to teach her son that lying was wrong. And she, and she was telling him, she, she was saying, you know what, lying is, is not only wrong and it's not only a sin, it's, a, it's an abomination before God. But with a little devilish grin on his face, he turns and he says, yeah, mom, but, but you got to admit, it is a very present help in time of need. And, and so David's convenient lie really showed his lack of trust. His lack of trust. Now, by the way, sure, the, the name Ahimelech, it means friend of the king, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he was the friend of King Saul. It could have meant that he was the friend of the king of kings, you know, I mean, if David would have given him a chance, David might have discovered that, that perhaps Ahimelech was the kind of guy who, who, who realized that although Saul was the king of the land, nevertheless, Ahimelech answered to a higher authority. He answered to the king of kings. He might have been the kind of guy that, that understood that sometimes to honor God, that means that you have to disobey the king of the land. You know, much like, like Corey Ten Boom during the days of Nazi Germany or, or, or Oscar Schindler. Uh, who, who, who bravely chose to defy Hitler's Mein Kampf, his, his, his manifesto to wipe out the Jewish people. And that they risked their lives, took their lives in their own hand to rescue these people. Or Irina Sendler, uh, who rescued some 2,500 Jewish children from certain death in those Warsaw ghetto camps. And so David might have discovered that Ahimelech might have been like that. That Ahimelech might have been the kind of guy who realized he answered to the king of kings that he was a friend of the king of kings. And so in many ways, David reminds us that, you know what, there are going to be times in our life where our worst fears will come true. And and, and during those times, we'll be be facing these moments where we, we don't know who to trust. We don't know who to believe. We don't know who has our back and who wants to put a knife in our back. And so the question in those times is that we have two choices. Do we trust God Or do we trust in ourselves, but we cannot do both? Do we trust God or do we trust in ourselves? Uh, Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So let me ask you, do you trust God? Is he your shield? Do you turn to him for refuge? Or are you the kind of person that says, you know what? I can't trust anyone but myself. Well, be warned. Because Proverbs 28, verse 26 tells us, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And so it would seem that David, the man after God's heart, is now trusting in his own heart. So he's on the run, but it doesn't seem that he's running to God. 
And so now, as we, as we pick it up in verse 3 through, through verse 6, David, now as he's talking to the priest, asks for the bread of presence. We'll see what that's about. Verse 3, now then, David says, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or, or, or whatever's here. And the priest answered David and said, I, I, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves pure from, from women. And David answered the priest and said, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are, are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today when, will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it's taken away. So in our mind's eye, here's what we should picture. We should picture the, that when David ran, he, he, he evidently, when he fled, he fled with nothing but the clothes on his back. Now, some of you know this, but, but my, my 75-year-old mother uh, has recently uh, had to flee from an abusive, uh, meth-addicted uh, boyfriend, a live-in boyfriend. She had to flee. And when she fled, she fled with, with nothing but the clothes on her back. This is a 75-year-old woman who climbed over a six-foot privacy fence, ran to a neighbor, called 911, and, and she had to flee for her life. But she left with nothing but the clothes on her back. That's the picture of, of, of David. So when David fled, when he ran, listen, he didn't have time to pack, let alone to pack a lunch. And, and so he, he comes and he's like, do you, do you have any food? Do you, do you have any bread to eat? And Ahimelech answers and says, well, all we've got is this, is this holy bread. Now, by the way, holy bread uh, does not mean that it was like super spiritual bread. Some kind of bread that you would eat, you know, that had mystical power in it, you know, and just supernatural. It wasn't like the priest was over in the corner, you know, blessing it and praying over it going, this bread is holy. This wasn't like mystical bread. The, the word holy, all it means is that it was different. It was separate. It was set apart for something else. It's not common bread for common people to eat. This bread had a different purpose. It was set apart for something different. That's all the word holy means. And, and so he says, you know, we have this holy bread. Verse 6 calls it the bread of presence. Now, why was it called that, the bread of presence? Well, because it was to be eaten in God's presence. You think of it this way. You're eating God's bread in God's house before God's face as a friend of God. Now, priestly tradition said that only the priest and the priest's family, they were the only ones who were allowed to eat the bread of presence. Just the priest and his family. That's it. Now, that priestly tradition comes from Leviticus chapter 24, verse 9. Leviticus 24, 9, it says, And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, that's a priest, and they shall eat it in a holy place. Now that verse is where they come up with the priestly tradition that only the priest shall eat it. But if you notice that verse, it doesn't explicitly say that the priests were the only ones who should eat it. It just says when they eat it, they eat it in a holy place. But nevertheless, that was the, that was the, the traditional interpretation, that it was just for the priest to eat. So we point this out simply to show that, that Ahimelech in this moment well, might have been breaking priestly tradition, but he wasn't breaking the word of God. In fact, later on, uh, Jesus uses Ahimelech's example to sort of set a, a precedence to show that human tradition should never be more important than the word of God. 
For example, in, in Matthew chapter 12, we read that the disciples one day are, are walking through a field. They're, they're hungry. They grab some grain and they start to eat it. When all of a sudden, the religious leaders pop up out of the bushes and they're like, aha, we caught you breaking our religious traditions, breaking our, our, our rules about the Sabbath. You have to understand, uh, the, the religious leaders had a list of 39 things that you cannot do on the Sabbath. These are not found in the Bible. They're not found in God's word. They were man's traditions. 39 things that were strictly forbidden to do on the Sabbath. Now, four of them, the disciples broke in that moment when they ate that grain. Let me read the four. Number one, there was to be no reaping on the Sabbath. No reaping on the Sabbath. Number two, no threshing on the Sabbath. Number three, no winnowing on the Sabbath. And number four, you were not to prepare a meal on the Sabbath. All four of those, the disciples apparently broke in that moment when they ate the grain. Because first of all, when they grabbed it and plucked it, they were reaping. And then second of all, they were winnowing when they rubbed it to get the chaff off of it. And then third, they were threshing when they blew the chaff away. And then all of that, of course, was done to prepare a meal. They, they, they put it in their mouth and they ate it. So in one fell swoop, they, they, they broke four of the man-made traditions about the Sabbath. And so with that in mind, the, 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 the religious leaders pop up and they're like, they're like, why did you break our traditions about the Sabbath? And then Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 12, verse 3. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. That's the man-made part. The priests were to eat it, but what they added was only for the priest. And, and then Jesus, to drive his point home, he, he then quotes from Hosea chapter 6. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, Jesus says, But if you had, had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not have condemned the guiltless. And so they're all like, well, why did you break our man-made traditions about the Sabbath? Uh, you know, these rules that we have. And Jesus answers and says, why? Well, because human need is always more important than religious sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so in this moment, when, when Ahimelech was, was giving David the bread of presence, it kind of illustrates two things. Number one, it illustrates that priestly tradition, that is human man-made tradition, should never be more important than the word of God. That's number one. And number two, it illustrates that human need always outweighs religious ritual. Now, for David, I think the bread of presence was a reminder that what he really needed was God's presence. As he's on the run, as he's being pursued, you know, it's one thing to, to, to be hungry for bread, but it's even better to hunger and thirst for righteousness. What he really needed was God's presence in this time. But as we pick it up in verse 7 through 9, we see that he had misplaced trust. His trust was misplaced. Verse 7, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg. Sounds like a bad guy, right? Doeg. The Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now we'll pause here. Now we meet this guy, Doeg. Says he's the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now we picture immediately some guy leading a bunch of sheep. Now the word chief here is a word that means mighty, but it can also mean violent. In fact, we're going to see that, that this is a man who lived up to his name in the very next chapter where he slaughters 
all of the priests because they helped David. Very evil man. And now in verse 8 continues and it says, Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you, ha have you not here any spear or sword at hand? For I have, have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, uh, the, the, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, then take it. For there's none here but that. And then David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. So now I think we get a glimpse as to the real reason David chose to come here in the first place, to the priestly city. Number one, because he knew he could find food. And number two, he knew he could find a weapon. Specifically, he could find Goliath's sword. And I do like the way Bible commentator David Guzik put it. He said, quote, David might have had the sword of Goliath in his arsenal, but he would have been better equipped if he still had the faith that killed Goliath in his arsenal. And so in many ways, I, I, I think this illustrates that, that, that his trust was misplaced at this moment. I mean, we see the, the man who, who once stood for God, the man who trusted that, that God would slay the giant, that God would slay his enemy, is now trusting in the sword of the enemy rather than in the God who slayed the enemy. It's almost as if he forgot his own words uh, when, when he himself wrote in Psalm 20, verse 7, he says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. You know, it's been well said that, that we'll never win the Lord's battles with the enemy's sword. And in the same way, listen, as, as followers of Christ, as believers in Christ, listen, you and I have been called to a battlefield, but it's a spiritual battlefield. We are reminded in 2 Corinthians 10.4, for, for our weapons are, uh, for our weapons are, 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 uh, of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We have, it's a spiritual battle. We have spiritual weapons like, like prayer, like fasting, like the word of God. It's called the sword of the spirit, like, like evangelism. These are our weapons in this age as we engage this culture. But listen, we will never win the Lord's battles with the enemy's sword. So we see that, that David comes, he, he, he picks up some food, he picks up a sword, and now he continues on his journey. And as he continues, we see that in verses 10 to, to the end of the chapter, David now pleads insanity. Verse 10, and David rose and he fled that day from Saul, and, and he went to Achish, the king, uh, to, to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servant of Achish said to him, is this not David, the, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in, in their dances, saying Saul struck his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart, and he, and he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in, in, in their hands, and he made marks on the, on the doors of the gate, and he let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see this man's mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen uh, that, that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall, shall this fellow come into my house? So now we read back in verse 10 that as David's on the run from Saul, it says that, that, he, that he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Notice the name of that, that city, the king of Gath. Now Gath, does, does that ring a bell? Does, does that sound familiar to you? Well, it should, 
Because uh, you may remember you read these words back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 20, I'm sorry, uh, verse 4, chapter 17, verse 4, where it says, And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath. And so here's the picture. David, the famous giant slayer, David, uh, who, who, who basically had his own theme song, his own walk-up music. I mean, everywhere he went, people were all like, you know, Saul struck down his thousands, but David is ten thousands. This is now the same David who comes strolling in to Goliath's hometown, carrying Goliath's very sword in broad daylight. You know, the people are looking at him and they're like, you know, boy, you got to have some kind of nerve. And King Achish looks at him and is like, you know what? You're, you're either stupid or crazy, but either way, you're dead. So at that moment, David, realizing he's about to die, he now pleads temporary insanity. The Twinkie defense. He's like, it's not my fault. The Twinkies made me do it. And so he, he starts drooling and he's scratching on the wall. And the king's like, you know what? He is nuts. He is crazy. You know, get rid of this guy. He's like, you know what? Look, look around you. Do I have a shortage of madmen, a shortage of crazy people in my midst? I don't need one more. So they let him go. They, they leave him alone. Now we wonder why. Why did they leave him alone? I mean, why, why didn't they kill him when they had the chance? Why didn't, they, why didn't they at least torture him? Why did they leave him alone? We see, in that day, the ancients often believed that when someone was mentally ill, they believed that they had been struck by the gods. They were being punished by the gods, but then they also believed that anyone who messed with someone who was mentally ill, if you so much as laid a finger on someone who suffered from mental illness, then, then not only did the gods who, who struck them with mental, mental illness, now they would strike you for messing with them, and you would now have mental illness. So no one touched them. They just left them alone. Now, by the way, I think, I think you know, David's own words... In, in, in Psalm 56, might shed a little bit of life on, on this, or a little bit of light on this time in his life. Psalm 56, by the way, is titled a miktam, that's a, a Hebrew word for, for song, a miktam or a song of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Notice the emphasis when they captured him in Gath. You see, we think he just went in there strolling into town. No, the truth was he was a captive. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 21 doesn't give us all the details, but evidently, you know, uh, David just thought that, 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 that by coming into the enemy camp, he would find refuge. He would find safety. He would find protection. But instead, what he found was captivity. And he ends up having to fake mental illness to keep the Philistines from killing him. And listen, like David, so many believers uh, so many Christians might uh, tend to find themselves where they, they're sort of drifting away from the Lord, kind of drifting away from God. You know, maybe, maybe something happened. Maybe, maybe they got hurt. Maybe they got betrayed. Maybe they got hurt at church. Maybe they got hurt by a church. So they kind of drift off. They drift away. And, and little by little, they find themselves trusting in themselves. And then little by little, they find themselves using, uh, the, uh, in, in, as they engage in the battles of life, using the, 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 the sword of the enemy. And before long, they end up drifting into the camp of the enemy. Now listen, the last place David belonged was in the enemy's camp, and everyone, including David, knew it. And in the same way, listen, the last place a born-again believer in Jesus belongs is in the enemy's camp, and everyone, including you, knows it. 
You know, but you go in there and 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 you try to blend in, and and you know, and so there they all they're 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 all talking about what they did over the weekend, how hungover they are, and how they did this, and they drank that, and they smoked this, and 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 they're cussing this way and that way and every which way, and then you walk in trying to fit in, and you're all like, hey guys, you know, I'm down to party too. You know, think, well, I got to cuss and stuff, you know, but the problem is you're still using those sanctified cuss words, and so you know, you're all like, you know, holy Moses. And, you know, and, and, and son of a biscuit and Judas priest. And then to really drive home, you're like, you know, shut that front door. And they're like, you don't fit in here. You, you're not one of us. You know, it's kind of like Peter. When, when, when Peter had denied Jesus three times, where was Peter? The Bible tells us he was warming himself at the enemy's fire. He was in the enemy's camp. And they look and they're like, you're not one of us. You don't fit in here. You don't belong here. You're one of them. Aren't you? You're one of his followers, aren't you? And then, of course, Peter, you know, he tries to, tries to prove he's not a follower of Jesus. And so it says in Mark chapter 14, verse 71, it says, then he began to curse and swear. He's like, you know, he's like, golly gee, Whitakers. He begins to curse and swear. And he's like, you know, I do not know the man of whom you speak. The last place a believer belongs is in the enemy's camp. Unless you're temporarily insane. And by the way, that, that, that phrase, temporary insanity, it also reminds me of, of another story, the story of the prodigal son. We read about him in Luke chapter 15, and we read how this, this rebellious son goes and squanders everything that his father gave him, and he wastes it away on, on, on wild, sinful living. But then he, he, he hits rock bottom. He's broke. He's as broke as a joke. He doesn't have anything left. But then when all his money was gone, so were all his so-called friends. And now that he hits rock bottom, now, now, now that he, 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 he's, he, he's totally destitute, he, he's reached the end of himself, Luke chapter 15, verse 17 tells us this. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and yet I perish with hunger? And so he, he, at this point, he repents. He goes back to his father's house. But it's interesting then in Luke 15, 17, it says, when he came to himself. Some translations say, when he came to his senses. And so this is, is reminding us that when a believer in Jesus backslides, it's as if you've gone temporarily insane. You're not yourself. You've lost your senses. You're, you're, you're temporarily insane. And so... You know, he, 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 he's come to end himself. He decides to go back home. And I'm sure as he was wanting to go back home, he was thinking to himself, you know what? If my father finds out all the things that I've been involved in, everything that I've been doing, he's going to kill me. But the truth of the story is, is that when his father came and embraced him, he threw his arms around him. And then it says in Luke chapter 15, verse 22, it says, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And then after that, he threw a party for him. Because the one that was lost has now been found. But he gave him three things. A, a robe, a ring, and sandals. Now the robe, that would speak of new identity. In that culture, men were often no, noticed and recognized from a distance by the robe that they wore, the color of their robe. They're too far to recognize their face, but you could still see their robe. And so the fact that the father gave his son this robe, it, it was, the idea is that, you know what, from now on, when people looked at the son, they no longer saw this rebellious, sinful son. They now saw the father. He was clothed in his father's identity, a changed identity. 
And then number two, he got a ring. This would have been a signet ring. It'd be like giving your son your, 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 your American Express platinum card. And this speaks of sonship. As, as, as he was repenting and he's wanting to go back, he's like, you know what? I'm not even worthy to be one of my dad's paid slaves. But he comes back and he's not restored to servanthood. He's restored to sonship. And then he was given new sandals. Now this speaks of a new walk. The idea is, is those feet that once walked in the world, those feet that once walked in sin, are now walking in righteousness. And in the same way, listen, if you've rebelled, if, if, if you've strayed from the Lord, if you've gone temporarily insane, what Jesus is saying, listen, this is the heart of God for you. He's not up there wanting to condemn you and, and judge you. He's ready to embrace you and restore you. This is why Romans 2.4 tells us that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Now back to David. Psalm 34 gives us one more piece of insight. In fact, Psalm 34 is titled, A Psalm of David When He Pretended Madness Before Ahimelech Who Drove Him Away and Departed. Now, many believe that, that it's quite possible that David wrote Psalm 34 after he repented, after he really came back to the Lord. It's like retrospect. He's looking back at this time of his life, and then he writes these words in Psalm 34, verse 18, and says, The Lord is near to all who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Listen, if you've strayed, if you've rebelled, if you've gone temporarily insane, Come back home, return, repent, because he wants to throw his arms around you. He wants to embrace you. He wants to restore you, not to servanthood, but to sonship. Why? Well, because the Lord is near to all who have a broken heart, and he saves those who have a contrite spirit. Listen, if he could do it for David, he could do it for the prodigal son. That means he can do it for you. Amen? So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that even when we're on the run, we can't outrun you. And Lord, we might, we might be leaning on this or leaning on that, but Lord, you alone are our refuge. You are our strength. Some of us have to come to the end of ourself to be reminded of this. Some of us have to, to reach the, the rock bottom before we look up. But Lord, we thank you that, that no matter where we go, you are our rock, the rock of our salvation. You are our shield, our refuge. And so we hide in you. You are our hiding place. Now, I, I don't know if there's anyone in the, in the room this morning. Maybe, maybe you're that prodigal. Maybe you've reached a stage in your walk where, where you, 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 your heart's been hardened. You've been straying. You've been drifting. You've been trusting less in him and more in you. And the lesson this morning is that if you repent, if your heart's broken, if you have a contrite spirit, his kindness leads you to repentance. He wants to embrace you. He wants to restore you. All you've got to do is return. If that's you, if you need to do that, you just need to return to the Lord, return to that sweet relationship with your heavenly Father. Just raise your hand, and I, want, I just want to pray for you. If there's anybody that needs that prayer, just put your hand up. I see that hand. If there's anyone else in that hand. Father, for those that raise their hands, Lord, that's just their way of saying, that's my heart. My heart needs to be restored into a right relationship with you. So renew in me the joy of my salvation. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Pray this with me. Lord, I surrender to you. I turn away from, from all of this and I turn wholeheartedly to you. 
Have mercy on me. Restore me. Forgive me. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.